Okay, dude, I'm ready for part two of Whose Line Is It Anyway, where the notes are made up and the melodies don't matter. Notes are made up, but the problems are real. <laughs> exactly. Do you ever remember when Drew Carey would always say that, where the, where the rules are made up and the points don't matter, and he'd, like, stack his cards on the table? and. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember, you know, that's – what what is that Dragnet? And then it was, like, one, two, three contact on PBS when I was a kid. Oh, yeah. Where the – it was, like, the names are made up, but the problems are real, and they were always sol- solving math problems. <laughs> Oh, that's right. That's right. Man, bringing back the old school. The 1980s were amazing. The 90s were also amazing. Man, I remember the 90s. Such good times. Yeah. Speaking of the 90s. Yeah. We're going to go back. The 1590s were off the oh. easy. I did it. <laughs> I took it there. The 1590s were off the easy. <laughs> Wow. That was a that was a good pivot. Yeah, it was good. That was good. And then talking yeah. about how good it was afterward is really good broadcasting. Uh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Maybe just let it land and move on. I think that's I think that's what they teach. Mm. I've just never landed before, so I had to celebrate. Oh, okay, cool. All right. <laughs> so, so uh, talking about line. Some more. I think last week's discussion was really eye-opening, especially that small clip that was kind of like the teaser for it where we talked about line being different than melody. Yeah. I th- that, like, marinated for a while and has led me to more questions and some specific things that I think the audience would also, like, benefit from a cool discussion on the nitty-gritty of the conversation a little bit. So there's three pieces that I think we could delve into. One is Portuguese composer Manuel Cardozo from the uh, late, well, yeah, the, well, mid-late 16th century into the yep. mid 17th century yep. and Carlo Gesualdo who's shorter time period but about the same time frame there are contemporaries one from Italy one from Portugal and then some random dude from contemporary times uh Max Feld Max Andrew Max Feld Max yep. Field Field is it Field is his name mm-hmm. just don't say Maxwell whatever you do okay Andrew Max Field Fell <laughs> is his name. And uh, with your cool piece, The Singing Bowl, I'm just talking about some specifics of how the concept of line is consistent, what consistent principles of line are found in all three of those. Sure, absolutely. So Where do you want to let's start with Cardozo, since it's probably the most quote-unquote conservative Renaissancean piece, I guess, if you were to classify it. And then we'll move into the murkiness of Jesualdo Mm -hmm. and then, and how that may reflect kind of, I I view Jesualdo as kind of the middle between the Cardozo and your piece Mm -hmm. in in just in terms of its uh, boundary breaking, for lack of a better word. Sure. And then we can talk about your piece at the end. 
and show how line, the concept of line has stayed consistent. You bet. Let's do it. Okay. Cardozo, when you first listened to that, have you, or first of all, are you familiar with this piece? Have you heard yeah, it? I listened to both and read the scores earlier today. Sweet. So this piece immediately grabbed me when I was first reading through things and first studying some of Cardozo. And I didn't really hear very many. I can't remember if I found this was it was a while ago. So I can't remember if I found any recordings of it other than maybe some live performances that weren't the highest quality of recording. Mm -hmm. And so that might be why I selected it, but maybe there was, I can't remember, but that's why we selected it to do it for sound of ages. And I just remember being immediately taken by some, by his counterpoint and thinking, man, Cardozo is very underrated. People talk about Victoria a lot for, and it's well-deserved, but Cardozo was right there with him writing some like amazing things with the use of texture and his sense of line and all that stuff. What are some things that you thought about as you listened? Well, as I listened, I mean, my first thing is a com confession is I didn't know the composer. And mm -hmm. it was interesting to read a little bit about him and realize that um, he was described as writing Palestrina style polyphony uh, sort of in ignorance of the development of the baroque elsewhere in europe so he was a little bit right um i don't know if you'd say behind the times or maybe just very comfortable doing what he was doing and in a lot of ways i think um is more connected to victoria than to say um contemporaries or forward-looking composers of his era yeah totally um when I looked at this piece, though, I think this is a great starting place because um, I think it illustrates line in a very basic way. Yeah. And um, really in a modest way. This mm -hmm. <laughs> nothing, nothing in this piece jumps out and tries to grab you by the ears and say, hey, pay attention to me. Right. Like um, the four-year-old two-year-old child yes yes pay attention and, to me and i don't i don't mean that in a bad way right because um, when you when i listen to this piece you know there, there's some of these kinds of um imitative polyphonic entrances and things like that that are characteristic of the style and the time but it's um very um uh, very linear each part is composed almost exclusively of stepwise motion mm -hmm. uh, therefore pretty easy to sing too if i were to um you know bet a nickel on it yeah uh, and you know characteristic of the palestrina style polyphony also is that you know each part is its own independent line that holds together on its sort of on its own rights and you put them together and you get this phenomenon that we love um you know you call it polyphony but it's this sort of experience of this ongoing intertwining interplay and because it's not yet we're not in the world of harmony yet this is this is still modal music it has that kind of endlessness quality to it because it, it doesn't have the the super distinctive waypoints and cadences that are 
um, sort of dictated by the norms of what we would later call the common practice, that sort of harmonic language. And so um, I feel like when you listen to this piece, every time you feel like it's about ready to um, resolve or stay put, it just keeps tipping forward. I love yeah. that. Right. And so typical of, like you said, maybe the generation before his contemporaries of when there's a cadence, there's a cadence in some parts and some parts are just starting at the same point. So you never really get this full sense of rest. So how would you describe, okay, so I, I agree that, and I see there's actually some really cool harmonic little twists, but they're very subtle. And, and to me, the, the, the word that comes to mind when I hear this piece is that it's really tight. It's really tightly constructed. What do you think are some musical qualities that give it, that would make a, a listener like me that sort of verbiage of it feels tight, it feels ongoing, it feels liney? Yeah, yeah. If you know? I were to try to put my finger on that, um, when you say tight, I, I envision something that is tightly woven. So you think about like a fabric where the the threads are woven together so tightly that it doesn't have a distinctive sort of like uh, meta pattern you don't have some one thread that you know you don't have a golden thread you have like four threads that are essentially the same color but they're they're put together so tightly that you wind up with this um, sort of elegantly um, uniform larger object i think that's kind of how i would put it and it's interesting when you when you hear it uh like the soprano line for example um i think i mean i'm I'm not an expert as i like to uh (laughs) emphasize and over and over again but right when you when you you look at this line you know that is um if i i think we would call that a g hypo dorian um because you have the dorian mode where G right. is the finals in the center of the collection and it's bounded on D on the top and D on the bottom. And it's so contained in the, yeah. it uses that the falling stepwise gesture on all of the major cadences, like on coulisse. Right. And um, it doesn't, that, that, the fact that it's contained is neither good nor bad. It's just, um so modest there's right there's almost no leaping going on and when there is it's just little little leaps that support the 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 words or support a new breath or whatever right um but but basically every part is like that and i feel like this the thing that's distinctive in the line is that um you have the little um uh kind of reframing of the major minor thirds you have yeah no and that's he ends up milking that it's such a tiny little thing but you don't need 
a wall that's built all of golden bricks. You just need one gold brick in your wall. And that's, I think, that's the modest little gold brick in this wall. And um, one of the, the things that my mentor, Philip Lasser, talks about is um, when we talk about an organic line, a line that's kind of coherent as a single complete musical thought, um, we're not talking about um, motivic development. We're not talking about me melody. What we're really talking about is sort of sub-compositional. And so mm. in my mind, this is a great example of sub-compositional composition, uh, meaning like this guy is spinning line strictly from the idea of counterpoint and not so much from the idea of trying to bop us over the head with an unforgettable melody right and that's is, not true and that's not true for Giswalda. when we get there we're gonna get yeah. something that is so compositional and so full of maybe himself or his personality or his longing his desire for forgiveness whatever it is right but if you don't i just don't hear that here right yeah and that i mean you hear there's these tiny little nuggets of if you're looking at the score, you're a nerd like us. Congratulations. <laughs> the, uh, we'll put links to the score in the show notes just from CPDL. But it, you, know, you look at measure six and you have this, you have this, it's a, if when you're looking at it from the perspective of, oh, I took my tonal harmony class and now I'm talking about harmonies, you look and say, oh, that's a fully diminished seven chord going to one with a four three suspension and it's like <laughs> and and it's like well yeah it looks like that now but when you listen to it you realize that it really it's not functional harmony they're all byproducts of the line of each part contributing to the overall line of the piece which is like you said these small little bricks of of okay, well we're gonna stay in this range. We're gonna stay modal. We're going to use mostly stepwise mo motion, and feeling like it constantly just spins out of itself, with with subtle texture changes to to, as they would say, make it more aesthetically pleasing. You know, because they thought about those things too. Mm -hmm. You don't want to bore the listener, um, but again, it's all very modest and and contained well i think you make a good point because the the thing that i mean we we today in 2021 can't look back at any music from the past without also knowing right the from the more recent past right and so yeah um you know i can't look at that this without also knowing um later music but cardoso didn't have that I mean, he, he knew what came before him, but not what came after. And so if you said, ah, you know, look at that diminished sonority, he would say, what? Yeah, what are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> right, because it doesn't exist. But but if you look, if you think about it, just like what Philip Lasser said, each of those, that diminished sonority, as we would call it in common practice, is basically modal functions acting simultaneously. So you have that, that, you know, playing with the major and minor, that B natural leading up to the C and the descending cadential form stepping downward in the bass. Well, what are you going to put in? And then you have the 
the main sort of melodic idea happening in the sopranos can go to a G. So you have all these things like acting independently of each other, how they're quote unquote supposed to, or how those tones lead them. And you can see, like you said, when you look backwards, you can see all of the things that came after and you can see how it got to that point where it's like, okay, we really want to bring this out over and over and over and over again so we can really like establish this as home base and we get to tonality but you see that it really is nothing new other than it's repeated or codified in some sort of motivic idea or established through but it's establishing these same concepts of line maybe in different ways well and you know philip would say the way that nadia boulanger and others taught that harmony ultimately is simply the study of doubling and spacing. And right. when you get to the Baroque, there's a codification of doubling and spacing that produces the syntax that we know as common practice. And I think it's very interesting to look at this music that comes before it and say, those weren't all foregone conclusions. Um, right. What we have here is the is not harmony in that sense with like the capital H, but we have harmony. In other words, we have these like these this phenomenon that's produced by the simultaneity of multiple independent coherent lines, and it's awesome. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And I, I you know I think that you know a lot of modern composers who find inspiration in this kind of music. They like to go back and say, well, what if what if it wasn't a foregone conclusion that all of this turned into that kind of predictable um, dog and pony show that we call common practice harmony? What if we just learned from the lines? And that's yeah. I feel like that's one of the bridges between early and modern is long. Yeah. I think that's really cool. So that being said, we'll Take a little pause, and we will listen to Cardozo's piece. So this is Cum Audicet Ioannis, speaking about John the Baptist by Portuguese Renaissance composer Manuel Cardozo.
Should we go Jezwaldo? Jezwaldo. Man, I just, the dude was nuts. I just, I don't know what it is, but he, to me, his music represents, I don't know. I can't even describe it. I haven't thought about it and tried to put it into words of why his music is so captivating, but it it's because of the twists and turns and the unexpected things that grab you, but I think it's because he can do that in the time period. And, yeah, he doesn't follow the rules, but he follows the most important ones, and it still works somehow. I think that's interesting that you frame it like that because following the rules is a really interesting right. lens. Uh, yeah. You know, what? what is it really to study counterpoint? Is it to learn how to robotically follow the rules or is it a way to mm. sort of internalize aesthetic principles sort of like right that learn- made it what it was right yeah 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 because i you know i okay so let's yeah, I'm- Maria. let's look yeah. at the first opening statement in the soprano and even though it's the second tenor that opens um, it has a less distinctive line, and I feel like that just becomes a um, a supporting layer between what we hear as the prominent opening statement in the highest voice. So you hear Ave, do, 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 it's so compositional right right off the bat we're it's so different (laughs) right and it it, you know it has that if 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 you once again go back to to jepson's text of uh of what it means to write good melody (laughs) you know Mm. and that i mean those principles still exist in a piece like cardozo kind of or palestrina Mm -hmm. but this is very, very clear, where the highest note in the melody comes towards the end and then resolves down. It has this balance of longer notes at the beginning and then quicker notes towards that climactic note. And it has this good sh- up and down shape, a good balance of skips and steps, a good changing of direction. Like all of those concepts that you think of in your textbook when you talk about good melody, mm-hmm. he follows that. And I think it totally shows that that's definitely like the word you use, compositional. Well, in, the, in my mind, you know, if you think about the, um, the, the music as a form of conveying literal textual meaning in a large acoustic space... Um, one reason why we have people singing in mass, for example, is that it's louder and it projects and you can hear, you can hear it from farther away. Mm. And if you have a, the priest or cantor or whatever intoning something, you, it literally will travel farther. Mm. And it, but, but that's kind of an abstracted 
that's really a really abstract idea. So if I were to contrast two things, one is this very abstract, I'm going to deliver my syllables like this. And yeah. I pause so that you can hear me in the back of the cathedral. That really doesn't have a speech-like quality. Uh, it doesn't have an emotional mm. contour, but it's very practical. And I think in the Cardoso, yeah, it has some text painting. It has those lovely um, uh, tangy cross relations and some of those um, linear rising passages and these kinds of things. But in a way, I feel like it's a little bit of a, it's a functional delivery, the way that a lot of polyphonic music was functional, where the intertwining of the parts was ab certainly beautiful, um, but it wasn't like Hamlet on stage giving you a monologue that is supposed to make you feel like you're about ready to die. Like feel things. And this I feel like is a different kind of thing where you hear, I mean, think about the, think about the way that you would say the words, hail sweetest Maria, true hope and life, sweet comfort, ave dulcissima Maria. Yeah, that that's right? like the most expressive oh Latin, gosh. ave dulcissima Maria. Like seriously, it rolls yeah. off the tongue and it's like, wow, holy crap. I'm like saying something really profound right now. Well, and then look at how he puts the notes with the words. Ave dulcissima. Right? Dulcissima. Yeah. That ascending little thing on the dulci, you know? Yeah. Dulcissima with that with the repeated a. Um when I hear this, I mean it's not Hamlet obviously, but I could imagine <laughs> I can imagine a solo vocalist delivering this like on her knees staring up into the darkness of the mysteries of God, right? Right. And, and it is so plaintive. It's so emotional. And where does that come from? Well, I don't know. It's something about the the fact that that first Ave is set off the beat. Mm, I mean, it's on the, the weak beat, whatever. Mm, ave, dulcissima Maria. Right? Yeah. And, I mean, that is composition. And I, I, there's, there's something different about it. And I know that there's sort of a, a lively conversation um, in... Uh, among historical musicologists about when the act of simultaneous multi-part composing really happened because right. early on people were thinking about line, adding another line, adding another line. And it was, it was sort of thinking about lines as separate strata. And then at some point, you know, call it the Baroque or whatever, pre-Baroque or this era where we're pivoting into the world of harmony, we started having the, these formulations for saying, ah, oh, we can think about four parts simultaneously moving in conjunction with each other and kind of compose them all together the way that we like to do with our lazy right. piano. Right. Right. Now. Right. The simultaneous versus linear composing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it really tells this, this would be one where you're like, holy cow, you compare Cardozo to Jesualdo and you say, mm -hmm. 
there is definitely a big jump there in the approach to putting those notes on the page and 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 I think so if we're talking if we're still talking about line I think that what what if I was to just consolidate all of what we've been talking about so far into like one sentence mm-hmm. you say Cardozo the line is contained it's moderate or modest I guess was the word we used conservative and it f- is this continuous flow of just kind of relatively directionless flow of notes intertwining between the text. Mm -hmm. Whereas the line, the line in Jesualdo is, (sighs) sorry, boring myself. No, I'm just kidding. Wait, what was that? Sorry. I was, I was totally asleep. (laughs) This guy. So, um, I, I think in Jeswaldo the the concept of line is if you think about all the parts together still, just like Cardozo, the line is the driving instead of just wandering aimlessly through the text is the driving emotion of the text using those same concepts of well, is the melody contained? I don't know, I haven't analyzed it enough to see if it stays within a I mean the soprano line does stay not that the range is not that wide like middle right. c up to a d mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like so it's still the whole melody is still contained within an octave but look at how he uses that octave and so I, yeah I, way what, differently right and so when we're talking about something being overtly compositional as opposed to just uh, sort of like structurally contrapuntal. Um, I, when I look at the Cardoso, I see it's a little bit like seeing bare math or something like that. You just you see the, you see exposed, the um, steel structure inside of a building, and and it's beautiful and it's perfect. Here, um, this is very ornately adorned, and yeah. It, it's still modal polyphony, right? It's like prototonal. You might call it prototonal. Um, it still has that endless quality to it because it. I think the endlessness of modal music is how we hear modal music because we have heard tonal music. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, but you know, look at the the, the second tenor line. And then what on the dulcis, dulcisima Maria, that yeah. octave leap. Oh my goodness! I mean, that is just yeah. wild, and it's right. so perfect. Yeah, so, so perfect. perfect, right? Um, but it's also like just Waldo sort of grabbing our earlobes and saying, "Hey, listen to this." <laughs> yeah, I, exactly. I wrote it, and it's full of emotion yeah and and uh, it's it's more performative and it's right uh, you know it's i i think he's doing something different with his lines and i don't think the lines are any better or more poorly constructed than cardoso's 
right. but he's doing something different with that line control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I totally agree. And it, you know, it's, it's, well, I remember overhearing, oh crap, I can't even remember who now. Someone in Sound of Ages, uh, when we were performing this for National ACDA, uh, we were at we were rehearsing, and I can't remember who it was, but someone in the choir was just like, "Yeah, it just doesn't go where you expect it to go." <laughs> that's because we that's because we have right, and I thought those expectations, right? <laughs> absolutely, but I, and I even thought two things. I two things that I thought as I was like, "Well, if you look at the line by itself." It may not go where you expect it to go, but it still follows those tendencies, I guess. Those like pulling tendencies where the half step goes somewhere or, you know, this leap kind of goes naturally to this other place because there's not, yeah, there's not just this one option, but the way he's constructed it with all the other parts doing that going in maybe a different direction it does it it resolves differently than what we expect from our with our common practice years but he's still following those like uh, you know horizontal linear principles well the idea of of counterpoint studying counterpoint is at least one idea is that it's meant to tune your ears to the tendency Mm-hmm. of tones within context and right. you know them's are fighting words when you <laughs> look at it through a you know sort of our our modern music and ears and ideas and um a lot of assumptions about equal temperament and right you know i like jazz wouldn't exist without equal temperament and without um uh but the counterpoint preceded equal temperament. And when you're when you're singing a line that moves in a certain way or you make a leap in a certain direction, the tones want to go. Yeah. Somewhere, right now. Do you always have to respect where they want to go or do you have the opportunity to surprise somebody if they go in a different direction? You've always had that opportunity to surprise people by subverting their expectations. But I think that's what, and I think that's what makes something like this tangy Giswaldo work, where it right. is, we would, I mean, we would use the word, you know, hyperchromatic, right? Because right. It's moving all over the place, and you've got these these puzzling sort of cadences um, that, you know, probably even to Cardozo, they weren't that far removed in time. Uh, Cardozo would hear this, I'm guessing, and say, oh, okay, that's a little tangy. Yeah. Um, oh, right. yeah. Especially when you think about writing for the church versus writing on your own or yeah. for the for the court, you know, that's not, a, you know, when you said you've always had that choice to choose. I was like, well, kind of. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. It yeah. depends. And, and I think that that's part of it. It plays a big part of it, too, of who you are writing for. And, and I think that that. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. But so it's it's this really intense chromatic. I mean, for its time, it's this intense chromaticism. But it feels wandery because we're still in a modal contrapuntal way of 
um, structuring things. But even in its tanginess, as you pointed out with Sound of Ages, um, it it works because the lines work. You can mm -hmm. get into you can get into and out of any variety of harmonies, you know, simultaneities, if your counterpoint works. Yep. This is a this is a perfect example of that. And he's yeah. you know, he's trafficking in triads because that's what made sense at the moment, but you can even hear him inside of the context of the triadic relations, so to speak, from one triad to another, pushing our ears. Uh, yeah. you know, like further, you know, uh, seventh chords as a strong beat simultaneity where we admit the seventh as maybe not, a, it's not as a, a consonance, but as a, um, a useful member of the chord, the way that we'll hear it soon in the Baroque and so forth. Um, he's not there yet, but pivoting right. from, uh, these, what you might call kind of like, uh, mediant relationships and these things. Yeah. Um, that's really tangy, interesting stuff. Yeah. I mean, he's no Monteverdi yet in terms of controversialness, but we could talk about that another time. Sure. I think it's also worth, um, on the level of composerly, uh, mm -hmm. compositional stuff going on. Right. Um, you know, Cardoso kept his texture flowing the whole time. Yeah. Day, right? Like, even when he yep. paused, he just kept, kept on going. But you look at the way that Gesualdo opens with the flowing polyphony mm -hmm. and then by measure 15, so we're in the second system of page two, on the O Maria. Yeah. It all consolidates into this sort of essentially homophonic pleading of the entire ensemble as a single voice. O Maria. Right. O Maria. Right, and then and then it, and then it fractures again, before pulling back into that single voice. Yeah, ora pro nobis, you know. And pray, pray for us, and yeah, yeah. But you see that, and I and I'm thinking, oh, you know, this guy's a dramatist. You oh know, yeah, he, he has, he has, intentions that are so far beyond the surface level of delivering the text. Right, right. right. And when you listen to his madrigals, you realize that he's writing a sacred madrigal right now. Yeah. It's it's one hundred one hundo percent a one, madrigal. Undo. One hundo. I don't know, I've been saying that a lot lately. It doesn't make any sense, but I've just been saying it just feels right, so it just rolls off the tongue. One hundo. Well, I'm not gonna stop. But you. yeah. That's cool. So then let's listen really quickly to Carlo Gesualdo, Ave Dulcissima Maria, performed by Sound of Ages.
my favorite part is our, <laughs> now a word from our sponsors <laughs> our sponsors are see we've done little debbie we need hostess in there oh yeah yeah hostess twinkies for life you can leave it unwrapped and it will never go bad what a selling point i like that but like my favorite i just can't i have to mention it because it's too good but the best part before we move on of the Jeswaldo is in i think i'm looking at a different score from you but the if you just look at um the bass's entrance of a dulcissima maria dulcissima maria and that that second ah that mm. they sing mm-hmm. you, you know you look at the the i have you know g d in the second tenor a in the first tenor d and then b flat against the a b flat and the soprano a against that tenor and the tenors have that awesome suspension because you you expect it to resolve to a b flat major chord but it kind of steps into this almost deceptive cadence with that that really tangy um, nine eight suspension. Oh man, best part, best part. Love it. So good. Okay, let's talk about this singing bowl thing. So, how is this related to that? Well, if we go back to Cardoso and to the philosophy that the composers musicians theoreticians of the time were embracing um you know the the idea or the ideal is that harmony is made up of independent singable lines yeah well okay i try to hold myself to that as a standard both at a pragmatic level because i want the singers to be able to sing i don't know comfortably happy. right uh i want to put words in their mouths certainly but i want to do it in a way that sort of rolls off the tongue and feels comfortable inside the instrument yeah um so i you know i hope that you see that you can you can tell me if i've succeeded or failed uh, uh in the words of me one hundo <laughs> one hundo <laughs> Seriously, well, if you think about, like, so when I first, just to give the audience uh, listening a little background, when I first got this piece, I, I was looking at it, and I was like, okay, there's some things here, and okay, cool, and that's a cool idea, and oh, this is a cool modal idea, I guess, or like, I don't know, like, oh, he's combining two modes, this kind of got this flat seven and this sharp four going on, and then, oh, this is neat, and, and I still, th- because it's because it's contemporary i got i caught myself in my own trap of thinking about it mostly vertically and how that's going to play mm. but then but then and and i was like okay this is a cool this has cool it has a cool sonic language um where it's borrowing from a lot of different modes all the time and then it has these jazz chords thrown in here and there and it's it's it keeps you on your seat but then when i looked deeper i realized that each line is in context of those moments actually really singable in the sense that it's idiomatic to a former time period Mm. 
in that just like Jeswaldo, your line makes so much sense. You know, if you're looking at if if you're looking at a part of it where the bases the bases jump up or the bases start the rhythm in your blood rhythm, rhythm, rhythm. and we have this cool sonority <laughs> and it, and it like that those are the exact pitches by the way um <laughs> but the you know you see that f sharp is leading us upward we're ascending and it so that f sharp keeps us rising and and even though it's kind of changing modal color there and where we're going to go it still follows that same sense of line and stepwise tendencies i guess that that the renaissance does and so i feel like it's idiomatic to now and idiomatic to then well it's i that's fun for me to hear those reactions i can't be a quality control judge of my own work but i can describe some of the ideas the I, I've been fascinated with the acoustic scale meaning the sort of the scale derived from the overtone series um, which if you spell out the overtone series you you do get all of the pitches of our scale but you get a you get a high fourth a sharp fourth a flat seven and your thirds are tuned a little different your sixes are tuned a little right. Different. And it's kind of interesting because the, you know, if you think about the accumulation over the centuries, where basically from the broke every hundred years we admitted um, another third <laughs> in right. language, where you start with the seventh and then you move to the ninth and then the eleventh and then the thirteenth, yep. and then you're you know sort of out of stuff. Right, and there's uh, these tertian. It's like yeah, that's the end all be all. Yeah, and, you know, <laughs> Boulanger talked about um, the history of harmony as um, gradually admitting into the definition of, of consonants all of the pitches from the overtone series. Mm. And in jazz, if you have an altered dominant chord, you have a dominant chord with a sharp four, maybe plus or minus a, f a flat or sharp nine, and a 13. And what is it? Oh, it's the overtone series. Right. And, if you look at jazz reharmonization or reharm as they call it, um, a dominant chord, so say that we're in the key of C major, a G7 chord dominant, can be substituted with a B7 altered dominant, and it has the same sort of level of gravity back to the tonic that the G7 would have. And that there, that's a a mile deep that we could talk about that but the, right. the point is that um, you can do anything you want if your counterpoint is good and that includes getting in and out of tricky interesting harmonies and yeah. harmony is really just a question of doubling and spacing and mm -hmm. so when I when I look at the harmonic language of this piece it, the entire piece is basically a meditation on the what on the sonority that a singing bowl produces when you tap a singing bowl you hear a lot of rich overtones that overtone series right and so you know you have you have a lot of these things that sound like what you said like this sort of um mixed yeah. up what a friend calls mixed up lydian which is <laughs> the sharp mixed four up yeah and you like flat that yeah that's clever sharp and four, flat seven flat seven yeah 
and it starts by being sort of um, madrigal in its construction. Yeah. And then ev eventually it just accumulates into these giant um, harmonic stacks of that same sort of altered dominant harmonic series uh, tertian chord that um, we have all experienced because we all hear overtones. And I yeah. think you know, Debussy, after having learned all of the rules so that he could break him, he was fascinated by sounds like that. Yeah. It drives his signature sound 100%. All well, the pla planing ninth and 11 chords and things like that, you hear it. Uh, you know, like, what is it? Oh, it's just, it's the sound that we hear echoing back to us from the instruments that we play. Right. And I think that that, to me, is so indicative. If, if we try to bring it back to the concept of line, I think that you even take, so you have this magical opening, you have these this sense of independent line, like micro line and then mm -hmm. macro line. Mm -hmm. And I think that then the macro line, the bit large scale is this kind of circular line where it comes back, right? You have this ABA form, mm -hmm. which is indicative as we go forward in musical time from where we just were talking a uh, composer ago. But that still doesn't mean that it doesn't go anywhere or that there's no sense of line because when I the sense of line in in like the A section is this really is affected by this strong sense of rhythmic drive and mm -hmm. asymmetry and dance like meter and all this kind of stuff and but it and then it melts into this slower line but really that is all then again contributing to the macro and is I think made up of your changing of textures, the way that you come in and out of rests, like where you have pauses, where you have texture shifts, where you have, you know, the voices falling off, or when you have a crescendo, you have lower harmonies, higher harmonies, dense, you know, tighter stacked harmonies, wider stacked harmonies, all of that contributes to this sense of line of we're going somewhere but we're going to come back to it. Mm. And I, I think yeah, it's well, that was... awesome. Oh, well, thank you. I mean, the, I've, I've said it before, but maybe not here, that the structure of the piece is meant to resemble a singing bowl where you start it on the shiny, sharp upper edge on one side. That's that kind of um, bouncy madrigal. that, And it has a lot of off-kilter meter because the underlying text is a sonnet. So you have this like, right. da-ee, da-ee, da da It's like, what? Right. You, you have, right. It's, an, it's an interesting pattern to sort of deal with. And then you slip down into this sort of timeless, endless, soupy resonance of the middle of the bowl. And eventually you ply your way back up to the top on that shiny, bright edge. Yeah, I think that's awesome. So, exclusive to Early Music Monday is the audio-only version premiere of Sound of Ages performing The Singing Bowl. We'll play a recording here. Look for a video version of The Singing Bowl coming soon to a social media service near you. Thank you. 
You did that really well. Yes. <laughs> Best day ever. So, if you were, okay, so that's the singing bowl. I'm glad you are all here to witness the audio premiere. Um, we performed it back in May at the Cathedral of the Madeline. It went really well, and then it was really nice to be able to, to get together and record it later. So if you were to close, Andrew, this Whose Line Is It Anyway Part 2, if you were giving young composers, young Andrew composer, advice, and if you were instructing him and teaching him and you had to kind of compact the definition of what is line and how do you get it, what would you say? I think I'd say two things. One is um, forget everything you know about labeling things. I think most of what music theory becomes is kind of like musical taxidermy where yeah. it's this it, it's this it's this activity of sort of it's mental gymnastics of okay stack up the thirds give it a roman numeral and move on very good thank you <laughs> and you're, you're like did i get the right answer or the wrong answer on that thing right so first is mostly forget that it can be it has its place but second start with counterpoint uh do it the way that everybody has done it since the practice evolved figure out how to write a single line in first species against a contus firmus and don't do it because there's a right answer and a wrong answer do it because you want to meditate on the phenomenon of acoustical consonants and mm -hmm. let the idea like the abstracted singular idea of consonants sink in over and over again and like appreciate it in your ears and in your body in your voice in your hands yeah and then go to second species and appreciate the phenomenon of a passing tone and yeah. appreciate the fact that you know composers in the 20th century were still fascinated by the phenomenon of the passing tone and the passing tone is so powerful because as my former professor steve lindemann liked to say um you know an f and a f sharp are light years away <laughs> from each other. Exactly. Right? Like the, the difference of a half step isn't like this, you know, it's not a quarter inch on a key, on a piano keyboard. It's like a, it's a philosophical psychological uh, universe. And yeah. if you want to make something sound new in this century, you might want to notice the different between half steps and appreciate just like how fundamental those half steps are and you know that, that my advice to myself which i feel like i finally wised up to um in my mid-30s is more counterpoint more counterpoint more counterpoint and it doesn't mean that you're doing it so that you can sound like palestrina or sound like right. Bach. it's to it's to understand the phenomenon of music itself and then over time you you're you find a way to say things in your own voice but you probably won't get there if you don't do the homework yeah preach brother <laughs> because i'd say the singing bowl is uber contrapuntal but it sounds 
about as much like Palestrina as Twinkies taste like salad. Oh, man, that is a gold star comparison. (laughs) (laughs) Both are delicious. They just have very different purposes. That's right. And you can't live without both. I won't ask whether my piece is the Twinkie or the salad. It doesn't matter because they're both necessities and in my bomb shelter. (laughs) 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 I'm just kidding. I don't have a bomb shelter. But if I did, salad... It would be all Twinkies, face it. I mean, what are you going to do? You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna store salad in a bomb shelter? No, I have a garden down there with lights. Oh, yeah, like those lunar tomato installation things. Yeah, except my plants have, like, certain leave things, and then you, like, chop, bake that, and then you can put it into a powder form and then sell it, and it makes tons of money. So that's how you're, that's how you're making your Twinkies. <laughs> No, I had, oh, I had a friend once. I had a friend once in Boston, and they, their family had some food storage, and, uh-huh. she, and she said, "I keep a six-month supply of lint chocolate." And she said, "Because think about it, like, if it really is the apocalypse, what's going to make you feel good? And Not... what is, and what is going to be the desired currency? Like, hundred percent chocolate." powdered mashed potatoes no said said no one ever no one (laughs) so let's not let our compositions be powdered mashed potatoes twinkies salad lint chocolate or bust this episode brought to you by twinkies salad and lint lint chocolate (laughs) (laughs) all right outro 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 okay we'll catch you next time on early music monday